0: I'll be reading out of John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. It's on page 1056 of the Pew Bibles, and I think it'll be up overhead as well. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples he left judea and departed again for galilee and he had to pass through samaria so when he came to a town of samaria called shikar near the field that jacob had given to joseph's to his son joseph jacob's well was there so jesus wearied as he was from his travel, from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? The Jews have no dealings, He gave us the well and drank from it Himself, as did His sons and His livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. The Fathers worshipped us; uh, worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know, When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for these words, Lord. We just thank you for your truth that's put in them. Uh, Just pray that you'd help us to hear what it is that you put on on Aaron's uh, heart to speak and help us to apply these things. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dave.
1: Well, good morning, church. You know, one thing that's really hard for me to understand is how superheroes can remain anonymous. And so, you know, I was thinking about a couple. See, you take Batman, he comes and he's exhausted the next day after fighting crime all evening, all bruised up, and nobody understands that it's Bruce Wayne. But the one that I really don't understand is Superman. All he wears is glasses. And people don't understand that he's Clark Kent. It's hard for me to understand that. Like, you really don't see it. His face is exactly the same. But then I realize those are comic books, those are movies, this is real life. And we can look into the scene and we can see who the person truly is, but the people that are speaking to him have trouble. And this morning we'll see a woman meet with Jesus to talk about worship. She's blind, but Jesus wants to make it clear that we are all called to worship, that we all do worship, but we are to worship God alone. Jesus isn't Superman, he's not Clark Kent, He doesn't change his clothes in a telephone booth. He doesn't take off glasses. He shows the woman and tells the woman who he is and what he came to do. But this woman, she is blind in her sin. Her mind doesn't understand the things of God because of her sin. But Jesus will make it clear. We all worship, but we are to worship God alone. So will you pray with me? Father, thank you that we get to gather together here this morning as your people. And that as your people, we get to worship you. And so God, would the meditations of our hearts, the words of our mouths be pleasing in your sight as we honor you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at the text again. We'll look at the first six verses. And we'll just walk through the passage this morning and see how Jesus continues to show us that we all worship, but we are to worship God alone. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... So last week we saw, or two weeks ago, we saw Jesus' first heart conversation with Nicodemus. And now today we get the second heart conversation with this woman of Samaria. We don't have her name, which is interesting. But we see that Jesus continues to display who he is and what he's done and to continue to build on this gospel in the uh, gospel of John, that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of the Old Testament sacrificial system and, and all of their systems and festivals combined. Like many occurrences in the gospel, here again we get the Jews. They are particularly, in this instance, the Pharisees that cause transition to happen in this gospel. And the Pharisees, again, they assume the position of the divinely appointed preservers of tradition. And so Jesus, he goes away into Galilee and he needs to travel north. He's down in Judea in the south, and he's going to go up north. And there's two ways to get to Galilee. It's about 70 miles, two main ways at least. The first way is along the Mediterranean Sea. I'm sure it's beautiful to travel that way, but it's longer. The second way is straight north through the area called Samaria. Samaria. The Samaritans are traditionally a historic Jewish people. We see in 2 Kings 17 some history about them. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom was divided, as God said would happen. You have the northern tribes, which are the ten tribes. If you're reading through some of the prophets, that's often referred to as Ephraim. They stayed together. And in the south, the southern tribes was Judah and Benjamin. They stayed together, often referred to as Judah, as you're reading through the prophets. And both the north and the south, they rebelled. They were both taken into exile, the southern tribes in 586 BC by the Babylonians. And in 720 BC, some 140 years earlier, Assyria invaded the northern tribes and they took them away as exiles. And as a... Uh, military operation the king of Assyria he decided that he wanted to resettle the land of Assyria or uh, of the northern tribes with people who were not of the nation of Israel you'll see this it should be on the screen in 2nd Kings chapter 17 verse 24 it says and the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon Cuthath, Abba Hamath and Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel and they took possession of Samaria and lived in those cities and when these northern tribes they came back some years later They didn't follow God's law that they were to only marry within the Jewish people. They started to marry these individuals from all of these other nations. They started to mix their people. They mixed their races. They mixed their religions and their cultures. And because of this, the southern tribes had looked at those folks and they looked down upon them. They looked down upon them and would consider them like half-breeds, not fully the people of Israel. Could you say that again? No. Sorry. That was only the beginning. They also regarded different texts of scripture as authoritative, as well as different locations for worship, which will come out in our text shortly. There was great religious and historic conflict between these two groups of Jewish people, the the Jews and the Samaritans. And so the under the providential hand of God, Jesus just so happens to be in this town. He takes the shortest route and he ends up in this area called Samaria and he's tired. He just so happens to find himself at a well. And he just so happens to find himself at a well when a woman from Samaria comes to draw water herself. And so while he's at this well, and this well still exists today, it's very close to the tomb of Joseph. It's about 100 yards north of this well. And tourists, they can still go to this well and dip their hands in and drink some of the water from this well. This field was, if you recall from our study in Genesis, chapter 48, was bought by Jacob. He was given to Joseph and his family, to Joseph to be buried there, and it's an important location for not just the Jewish people, but also for the Samaritans. And John the Evangelist, he wants us to understand that these events are not just random. The well didn't just happen to be there. It was purposeful because Jesus wanted to meet this woman to talk about worship. It's all part of God's providence, what we talked about is God wisely applying his sovereignty for the sake of his people to learn from and to be used by. We are all, we all worship. We are to worship God alone. And what's great here is that we see Jesus as truly human. You know, the word became flesh, that he experienced fatigue, he experienced exhaustion walking in the desert. It was about the sixth hour, which is around noontime. time. It is the hottest part of the day. He was hot, he was tired, he was wearied as he was, as the text says, and he sat down by the well. And so the stage is set where we all worship but we are to worship God alone. Let's pick it back up in verse seven. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So this woman, she begins to initiate the heart conversation that Jesus will have with her on her own. It seems with a just natural discussion. I'm thirsty. It's hot. And so, like Jesus talked to Nicodemus about new birth, and it was a natural occurrence that Nicodemus didn't quite understand. Jesus is going to talk to her about being thirsty. But she was confused. The difference here between Nicodemus and this woman is stark. Nicodemus, he was a learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained man, a ruler, and a teacher of Israel. In this passage, it's an unschooled, uninfluential, despised, capable of only folk worship woman from Samaria. She's a moral outcast, as we'll see Shortly, There is no greater contrast that Jesus could meet on the road at this well. And like Jesus, she is thirsty. She is the one who brought the bucket. And normally these women would come to draw water, but they would come in groups for protection. But she came alone because of her public shame as we will see shortly. She's isolated. She's isolated as a woman from the rest of the women of her town, probably because of her sins. The disciples, they went into the city to buy food, so Jesus finds himself alone, probably because it was either winter and restaurants closed during winter, or maybe it was a Monday or Tuesday, and so they decided it would be closed as well. But Jesus finds himself alone with her to have a conversation, a heart conversation in private, where the shame for her was probably avoided to make it worse. She understands he is a Jew, maybe because of his dress, maybe because of his accent. Like us, as we are from California, we stick out. And she asks, why would you ask me, as a Jew, to get you water? It's awkward. Jesus, or, um, Jesus. Wesley was getting a haircut this past week and he's talking to the hairdresser and uh, she asked him, well, where are you from? And he said, well, we're from California. And she asked some follow-up questions. Well, why did you move to Vermont? And he said, well, my dad is a pastor. And that was the last words that the hairdresser asked and said to him. It became awkward for her to have a conversation with a 12-year-old. But literally this woman, she says, Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. And so drinking or even eating with her, let alone using the same bucket as this woman, just continues to bring forth the awkwardness of the conversation. Being alone with her was awkward. And the aversion between the Jews and the Samaritans, it was deeply rooted, going back centuries hundreds of years the samaritans they viewed themselves as true israel as heirs of the promises of god from israel and their version of the bible they only believed in the first 5 books of the bible were the authoritative words of god they believed that their version of it was direct from god direct from moses so the reason why I'm sharing all this background is the entire situation was awkward. The thirsty son of God engages with a woman. The Messiah, he engages with a Samaritan. The one from Israel engages with someone from outside of Israel. But Jesus takes the time to engage with her. He engages for the sake of talking to her about worship. He engages because we all worship and we are to worship God alone. There's no amount of awkwardness that this woman could bring to the table that would prohibit Jesus from talking to her. If you're like me, you can tend to avoid conversations that could become hard. Sharing the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Last week, we shared examples of how to share that with other folks. It's online if you missed it. But a question for us is do we want to engage with others? If not, why? Because Jesus would. And I want to say, Jesus does more for those who are marginalized. Jesus does more for women than anybody in the history of the world. Don't listen to the garbage that our culture says about how people treat women. Jesus does more than anybody could ever have imagined because Jesus is gracious to all. And so Jesus begins the heart conversation with this woman. Pick it up in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sure, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself Friends, Jesus has the gift. Jesus is the gift. And the word he gave or gift is used seven times in just these eight verses. Jesus came to discuss the gift and identify himself as the Messiah, as the gift of God, because we all worship. We are to worship God alone. The water theme resurfaces here again in the Gospel of John. We we see this in John chapter 3, this living water that Jesus talked about, where Jesus says that we must be born again of spirit and of water in his communication to Nicodemus. And salvation is this gift of God, not earned as we saw last week in our discussion with John the Baptist And in scripture, living water is referenced as God's activity or grace towards us as God's people. We see this prophesied in Zechariah chapter 14. Verse eight, he says, On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. On that day, the day of the Lord, this water will flow from Jerusalem. And this living water is also another example of the way that John uses uh, John the Evangelist, who wrote this gospel, uh, words that have double meaning. Remember, where they're at, they're at a well. She and Jesus are both thirsty. And Jesus finds it, as well as she, or she does, easy to talk about this flesh, or fresh flowing water. She says, Jacob didn't dig this well, but he gave the field, and we have drank from this well for decades, for centuries. And Jesus, you're saying that you can do more. If Jesus was offering this fresh water without expending any energy to dig it or any buckets to pull water up, she could conclude Jesus is greater than Jacob or he's just a cheap charlatan. And this woman understood the Options, And here Jesus will continue the hard conversation with practical circumstances like new birth with Nicodemus and thirst for a woman. Jesus talks this about how this new water that he provides. He says in verse 14 that these earthly pleasures, even the water that can be provided for you will make you thirsty again. Look at verse 14 again, Jesus says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus' role, it is revealed. He will give water in which he will never be thirsty again. He will give and the spring will well up within us to eternal life. And the repeated references to thirst in the last couple of verses indicate that Jesus ministers to real felt needs. Thirst is one of the most intense and imperative human needs that we have. Maybe mine is also coffee, but I tell the doctor there's water in coffee, so it's okay. It shouldn't be surprising that in scripture that thirst is used as a metaphor for spiritual desire. Tyler read one, Wes read one this morning. Psalm 42, one to two. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or as the Beatitude, Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But our greatest thirst is not for water. Our greatest thirst is for God. Our natural thirst for this eternal life in the presence of God is only met in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon us. And that's the spring that this woman needs. That's the spring that we need. That's the spring that Jesus wants to give her, that Jesus wants to give us, but she still doesn't get it. One commentator said that the woman's misunderstanding, it becomes crass. She asks for this magic water that Jesus has so that she may not have to come daily to this well to get more water. Maybe she's being practical, but she still doesn't get what is most important in the circumstances. He's like Clark Kent to her with glasses on. We know it's Jesus, but she has no clue. He's the living water we want to save while reading this story. She needs to open up her eyes. She needs to have her ears unstopped. She needs to have a heart that would respond to him. She is blind though from her sins. That's why she can't see, because she worships herself. And we all worship. We are to worship God alone. And we'll see how Jesus addresses this in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have Is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman's probably thinking, uh oh, he knows. So the first of the Ten Commandments is this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 You shall have no other gods before me. And in Romans 1, Paul picks up on this. Idolatry and this idol worship in verses 23 to 25, he says this, where the people have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And he says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature Rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Friends, anything that we worship that is not God is idolatry, even if it's ourselves. As unbelievers, we were all at one point idolaters. We probably still struggle with that if you're like me today of idolatry, to not worship God. Initially, she may have been like, well, what are you talking about? Why'd you bring a marriage? Like that dog from the movie Up, right? You know, they squirrel. We're going to be distracted of what is actually taking place. Last week, John used the idea of marriage. Now Jesus does this in talking about this woman's marriage as a discussion point. Jesus wants to address this woman's worship. In all of the Gospels, we see that Jesus is constantly flexible to attend to different people's needs. And there's different encounters with people all across the spectrum. He has an uncanny ability to to drive hard into our greatest sins, our hopelessness, our fears, our guilt, our despair, the things that we need, that these people need. And it's a good thing that he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So it's gracious for him to actually drill deep into what those needs are because he is the solution for them. She literally responds to him, I have no husband or no husband I have. She has no husband. She has husbands with an S. We do the same thing, right? We twist our language to make ourselves not look as bad as we are. I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. I'm not being greedy, I'm being a good steward. I'm not being selfish, I'm being prudent. Or I'm not lusting, I'm just observing the beauty of that woman. I'm not yelling, I'm just being direct, I use that one. But friends, Jesus, he knows it all. And so we can be honest with him about our struggles, about our idolatry. This woman's real spiritual need is spiritual conversion and a cleansing of her sin. She needs this living water that Jesus has been talking about. And when Jesus pointed out her sin, she didn't like it. But the law was given through Moses. As we bring out what God's word says, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ and that's grace upon grace as we saw in chapter one. And so when we think that we've overspent the ability for God to continue to give grace to us, his grace is sufficient for us, and it never runs dry. And so what would Jesus ask you about? What's your idolatry? What do you truly worship? This woman, she worshiped men. She doesn't understand that she worshiped herself, but Jesus does. And so no amount of well water could quench this thirst that this woman had for men, but Jesus can. And in God's order of the world, marriage is always restricted to a public, formal, and officially recognized covenant. But Jesus uses it to show her that we all worship and that we are to worship God alone. And let's see as Jesus speaks to this in our last section as we get into verse 19 to 26. The woman said to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You see her change the subject? I don't want to talk about my marriage. Let's talk about worship. You're a prophet. But she forgot that the prophets wanted heart transformation, but they also wanted Are us to conform to the words of Christ and not just, I'm sorry, they wanted heart transformation, not just our obedience. And so she points out the big difference between the Samaritan people and the Jews and how they worship. So she brought it up and Jesus knows this and so he gets to her greatest problem finally. So he has set the stage from the beginning of the conversation to finally talk about worship because we all worship and we are to worship God alone. So they're talking about a mountain, a location of worship. The Samaritans, they worshiped at Mount Gerizim, which actually overlooks this well. And this mountain had its temple already destroyed a couple hundred years earlier, but the Samaritans still came to this mountain to worship. But with Jesus in verse 21, it's not about a location but a who we worship. And Jesus wants them to realize that it is the Father whom we are to worship because we all worship. We are to worship God alone. And Jesus announces this impending destruction and obsolescence of not just the mountain that's already been destroyed that they're looking at for the Samaritan people, but also the mountain where the Jews worship in Jerusalem, which will be destroyed in AD 70. But in verse 22, he reminds her that salvation is only for, from the Jews. Jesus points out that geography is a matter of indifference as far as worship is concerned. That this woman will no longer be faced with the dilemma, where do I worship? Do I worship here in Samaria, or do I worship in Jerusalem? Her choice is two different things. Does she worship herself? Or does she worship God? We all worship. We are to worship God alone. Jesus says, believe me. Or more literally, believe in me. Jesus wants this woman to take note. He wants her to realize what he is talking to her about. He's not arguing about the right temple, or the right church, or the right denomination, or the right songs to sing, or the right partnerships to have. He wants to talk about right worship. Her sin was her worship. She wasn't worshiping God. She was re-worshiping created things, herself. We are to worship God and God alone. And in verse 22, Jesus' language transitions from you in the singular to you in the plural. Use Samaritan. All you who say we worship at this mountain, you don't know God, Samaritans. Samaritans, they didn't know God fully because they didn't have the full counsel of God. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. But salvation is only from the Jews who had the entire Old Testament. That salvation comes through the royal line of Judah, through the King David, through the southern tribes, not the northern kingdom of Samaria. But not only is salvation only in the line of David, but it's in the people of God, the Jews who had the full counsel of God, the Old Testament and subsequent New Testament as the church where salvation is made available to all who believe. Those who used to worship idols who put their trust in Jesus. And as I said, both locations would eventually be destroyed. Gerizim was already destroyed. Jerusalem will be destroyed in AD 70. But what Jesus says in verse 23, that the hour is coming, which signifies his death, when true worship will happen. It is through Jesus' death when true worship can happen. And that worship will be worship in spirit and in truth. So what Jesus is saying, open up your eyes. Don't look at the mountain. Look at me, Jesus is present in front of you. He is there, I'm here, he's saying. Look at me, worship comes through me and my death. Like us, we would be at the Superman movie, right? He's right there, look, open up your eyes. There's a great book, Desiring God, it says that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Friends, God is the greatest treasure that we can have. When we worship anything other than him, we are missing out, and it is idolatry. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, God seeks our worship not because it meets his need, but because it meets our need, our greatest need. God doesn't need our worship. He will be glorified whether we worship Him or not. But worshiping God is what is best for us and where we will get the most joy that is possible. We don't fill a hole in God's heart. He makes our hearts filled with joy by worshiping Him. Isaiah 43, Verse six and seven says this, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I have formed and made. Friends, we are created for God's glory. John Piper says that every pleasure not rooted in God will fail you. Your heart was made to find your greatest and longest happiness in God and God alone. Anything that we worship or esteem more than God is idolatry. And Jesus says, God is spirit, therefore we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Where God is not a material being that we can touch or we can see, he is spiritual. And so worship is a matter of spirit and truth. He is everywhere present, so location doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what mountain or what church or what home or what car you drive in or whatever. We are worshiping, he is everywhere, but we are to worship in spirit and truth. And with some more confusion on her part, she acknowledges, well, I know the Messiah, or the Christ, is coming. He will tell us what to do. You're a good teacher, but someone else is coming. It continues with the awkwardness. But in verse 26, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Literally this says, I who speak to you am. And immediately, the Jews and the Samaritans, who both believed in the first five books of the Bible, would recall the words from Exodus. When Moses, at the burning bush, he asked God, who shall I tell the people, or Pharaoh has sent me? And in Exodus 3, verse 14, God says this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. So again, this literally says, I who speak to you am. Not only does Jesus say he's the Messiah as promised, but he says that he is the covenant keeping God of the Jewish people. He's Yahweh, I am. And Jesus uses a reference that she would know well from the first five books of the Bible. We all worship and we are to worship God alone. And next week we will see this woman respond. She finally gets it. She lays down her idols. She follows and she introduces others to Jesus like John the Evangelist does. And these things are written for a purpose. As we'll say every week, John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Where she didn't understand, and she begins to understand, and she receives life. The woman without a name, with a pretty bad past. This woman needed to see the Messiah. To see true worship is worship of God. Not worship of self, that worship of God is true joy. And this joy is unquenchable, like the thirst of a well in the midst of a desert on a hot day after a long walk that Jesus just so happened to be at. John the Evangelist, he will continue to direct our paths in this gospel to our hearts. Today, it's about worship. It's easy to turn good things into God things, where we sacrifice for them where we compromise for them, and we functionally worship them. John Calvin says that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And so friends, what are your idols? What would your bank account say your idols are that you give your money to in worship? What would your browsing history say your idols are? where you continue to click through websites? What would your social media posts say about what your idols are? Those who you're for, those who you're against, the opinions that you have. What would your friendships show your idols are? If you ask the folks that you work with, who you spend time with, who you talk to, what your idols are from their perspective, what would you think they would say? We can be honest. We don't all worship God and love Him perfectly with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. But we all worship. We are to worship God alone. And Jesus is so good to confront our idols. Remember, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, the good news, that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but he doesn't just call out our idols and our false worship, he pays the penalty for those idols and for our false worship so that we don't have to pay the penalty ourselves. That's grace. Even from this church, as we open up God's word, we will call out idols, we're just gonna preach the gospel, we're gonna read the Bible, we're gonna explain what the Bible says, but we don't want to be that church that never gives grace either. You should always hear grace from this pulpit, regardless of who open up God's word for you. It's not, allow, it's not loving to allow others to continue in their sin, especially if we know what that sin is. It's loving to confront it and to bring it about because as Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul, he calls the Colossian church to live according to a resurrected life, to put to death the worship that we have that's other than God. And anything that we worship other than God is not worthy of our worship. Only God is worthy of our worship and do our worship, and we all worship, but we are to worship God alone. And so we've worshiped, as already this morning, through our prayers. We've worshiped in the reading of the scripture. We've worshiped through the preaching of God's word. You can worship in the giving of your tithes and offerings. We've worshiped already in song and we will worship some more in song as I call the worship team. Uh, So will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are so good to meet our greatest needs to meet our needs that are quenched through the death of your Son in our place on the cross and for our sins that are quenched through his resurrection of, from the dead to give us a newness of life. And God, we thank you that you are infinite, that you can meet not just my needs, but all the needs in this room, all the needs in this world for those who desperately need the living water that you provide. And so Father, we thank you for providing the means by which we can be saved and belief in your son. And so God, would you be honored in the rest of our time together as we worship Even after we've done singing songs, as we continue to fellowship with one another, would you be honored? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us now as we sing about living waters?